Good morning, Gateway Church. I'm Tom Clegg, and I'm so glad that we can be get together this morning. Let's turn our attention now to God's Word. We're in Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiantly, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this raising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things, and how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. They did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is God's holy and inerrant word. And I say that because I want to remind us that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. But there are some passages of Scripture that seem to tower above other places in the Bible. And this morning is just one such mountaintop, the transfiguration of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's not with a little fear and trepidation that we come to this passage of what I think is is really holy ground in today's text. And as we lean into this passage together, let's pray. Almighty God, we come before you this morning grateful for your word, for it teaches us, it it reproves us, it corrects us, it trains us in all righteousness, as Timothy wrote. It gives us what we need for this life's journey. I pray that you would speak to us this morning through this passage, that you would help me to articulate clearly uh, what it has for us and apply it uh, to our lives. Thank you for each and every person who's part of this body, and I thank you in advance for those who are yet but not already. We love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you. And we ask your blessing on this time. In your name we pray. Amen. At the beginning of the epic tale, 
the Lord of the Rings, in the, in the first book, The Fellowship of the Ring, in the first movie, there's a great scene where Bilbo, he's the one that discovered the ring in the previous book, The Hobbit, and this ring had this unbelievable power. There were seven rings, and it was the one ring that ruled them all, and it had this magical power. It could cause him to become invisible, to disappear and reappear at will. I mean, who wouldn't want to have that ring? Oh, the mischief you could get into if you could disappear at will and remain invisible in the room. Nonetheless, he's he's done. It's been a heavy burden on him to have this ring, and he's he's through with great journeys. He's ready to retire, to hang it up, and he's had his Bon Voyage retirement party, and he's about to bequeath the ring to his nephew, Frodo. And as the scene unfolds, Gandalf is urging Bilbo to, to do what he says and to leave the ring to Mr. Frodo. But Bilbo, Bilbo is having second thoughts. I mean, that temptation to hang on to that kind of power was just great in him when all of a sudden Gandalf's appearance changes and he grows enormous, towering over and filling up that little hobbit room. And this change in his appearance has a profound transforming effect to Bilbo. And it helps him follow through with his mission. In our text this morning, Jesus' appearance changes. And it has a powerful impact on the disciples. It has an powerful impact on himself. And it can have a powerful impact on you and me. An intriguing aspect of the Gospels is that not one of them pays any attention at all to what Jesus looked like. Beyond stating that he had a beard, there's no physical description. We don't know how tall he was, what were the color of his eyes, the texture of his hair, the shape of his hands, the sound of his voice. There's nothing about his physical appearance. And that poses a very interesting question. Would you have recognized Jesus Christ in a crowd? I mean, Sure, you might have picked him out because of the crowds that had gathered around him because he was the one speaking, or maybe because of the buzz that was going around. Somebody could point him out to you. But if Jesus was in a lineup, would you be able to spot him? Did he look like the Son of God? The Old Testament prophetically says about him in Isaiah chapter 53, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Outwardly, at least, he didn't look like the Son of God or a son of a God. There were his miracles, but even those didn't prove that he was the Son of God. Moses and Elijah, who we meet in this story, they, they perform miracles. And they were, well, just a little bit more dazzling. Parting a Red Sea, plagues, fire from heaven. I mean, that's miracle stuff. A little more dazzling than Jesus' miracles. So it's outright difficult for the disciples by this time to know whether or not Jesus really was the Son of God. He doesn't look like the Son of God. And quite often his behavior was really the very last thing you'd ever expect from the Son of God. 
And that's why his identity as the Son of God is something that we have to accept by faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And what takes place in our passage this morning? Well, it happens in private. I mean, completely exclusive. And that's nothing short of fascinating. You would think the transfiguration, and that, that's something to be worthy of, you know, CNN. You'd think an event of this kind ought to be seen by more than just three of his disciples, maybe the 12, maybe the 70. Why not the crowd of 5,000? There's something obviously intriguing about this event, that it's not a show. Something the whole world should see, at least at that point in time anyway. Instead, it's utterly and exclusively private. Now, nothing like this had ever happened before. Of course, Moses, you know, came down uh, from the mountain and his face had shone, but that was a reflected kind of glory. That was a sunburn sort of uh, glory. This is glory, glory emanating from him, come him, coming from him, not reflecting off him. On this mountain, it's either Mount Tabor or more likely Mount Hermon, Jesus is transfigured. The English word metamorphosis comes from the same word Mark uses here, uh, metamorphothi. He was changed. And while the description is limited, he changes not only in his physical appearance, but even his garments seem to change as well. Now, Jesus had taken on human form in the incarnation. He was, in the words of the shorter catechism, found in a low condition. His glory in, in Wesley's Christmas Carol was veiled in flesh, but now the veil is pulled back for just the briefest of moments. And because of this, Peter, James, and John would never be the same. James, John's brother, not James the brother of Jesus, but the brother of John, half of the, you know, the sons of thunder. He would be the first of the disciples martyred in Acts chapter 12 by, by, by Herod. But Peter and John would later go on to write about this incident. John said, we beheld his glory in chapter one, the book of John. And Peter said in 2 Peter chapter one, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What they beheld and witnessed was just the teensiest bit of the majesty of God. And that would have an effect not only upon the disciples, but it would have an effect on Jesus as well. Because now, in a way that goes far beyond our comprehension, the Father, through Moses and Elijah and through his own glory, something imparts to the human side of Jesus, glimpses what lies before him and beyond to the glory that will follow. So let's look at this passage uh, from three perspectives this morning. First of all, what the transfiguration meant to the disciples, what the transfiguration meant to Jesus, and let's wrap it up then by what the transfiguration 
means to you and me today. Okay, first let's look at what the, transfer, the transfiguration meant to the disciples as they hear the words from God himself, this is my beloved son. Matthew adds to the narrative, with whom I'm well pleased. Incidentally, if you've ever been to a bar mitzvah, that's the, in the Hebrew and Jewish tradition when a, when a boy officially becomes a man, in part of the ceremony, the father stands behind the son and he claps his hands on his shoulders as the son has the Torah unrolled before him. And a Jewish father today, just as our father in heaven said back then, this is my son, whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. There's little doubt that this happens on this mountain. First of all, to confirm Peter's assertion made just a week before in Caesarea Philippi, when Jesus asked the question, who do people say that I am? And they gave a variety of reports. Then directly asking Peter, but who do you say that I am? Peter answers, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And now, in order to affirm that realization which the Father had given to Peter, what said and done on the mountain confirms the identity of Jesus. He was transfigured before them, it says in verse 2. Elijah and Moses appeared to them, in verse 4, and a cloud overshadowed them, in verse 7. The focus, in part, is on the effect it has on the disciples. They're given a glimpse of the unimaginable glory, the majesty, the beauty, the transcendence, the otherness of the God of the universe. And it seems that Mark is straining to try to capture this event as he describes Jesus' clothes in dazzling white, whiter than any launderer in the world could ever bleach them. I mean, they've never seen anything like this before. In all the months of itinerant ministry and on the road together, living and traveling and working with Jesus, they've never seen anything like this. And the cloud itself, like the Shekinah glory that filled the tabernacle and the temple, the very essence in the Old Testament of the presence of God, a theophany, and the Father says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And whatever Jesus had said before in the weeks leading up to this about going to Jerusalem, about being betrayed, about being handed over to wicked men, about being crucified, that that mustn't confuse them about who he really is. And as usual, they didn't listen. They didn't understand right away. But Peter eventually he did get it when he writes, as I mentioned before, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty in 2 Peter 1.16. From there, Peter goes on to grasp the second coming because of what he had seen on that mountaintop. So God the Father is confirming to Peter, James, and John the true identity of Jesus. And this represents in part, the fulfillment of the enigmatic words at the beginning of the chapter, when he says, some standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God coming in power. This is not about the resurrection. 
And it wasn't really the kingdom of God. That what really wasn't the kingdom of God coming in power because remember when Mary Magdalene first saw Jesus in the garden after he was resurrected, she thought he was the gardener. When the two guys on the road to Emmaus were traveling, they met a fellow traveler. They didn't recognize that that traveler was Jesus until afterward. Nor is Jesus talking about his second coming. He's saying that there would be some, Peter, James, and John, who would still be alive, who would see the kingdom coming in power. And what this is, is it's a demonstration of the kingdom, the power, and the glory in something else, which lay beyond not just the cross, but beyond even the resurrection, the glory that was natively and essentially Christ's, which they too would share in one day in eternity. Calvin wrote about this occurrence when I quote, Christ clothed himself with heavenly glory for a short time. His transfiguration did not altogether enable his disciples to see Christ as he now is in heaven, but gave them a taste of the boundless glory such as they were able to comprehend it. This was not a complete exhibition of the heavenly glory of Christ, but under symbols which were adapted to the capacity of the flesh, he enabled them to taste in part what they could not fully comprehend. They're catching just the briefest of glimpses of the glory of Jesus. Throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus didn't live like this. He lived like one of us. In Paul's words, one who had emptied himself, and he lived that way for 30 years, and nobody noticed. His native glory was veiled. Yeah, he was veiled in what? He was poor, homeless, hungry, and thirsty, weary, and powerless, described as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But for just a moment, for just a moment, heaven comes down and attests to who he really is. And a voice speaks and redemptive history comes into crystal clear view with Moses unveiling Christ's fulfillment of the law and Elijah unveiling Christ's fulfillment of the prophets. And they're both witnesses to what he is, as Paul's letter later explains in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, and all the essence of God as he appeared to Moses, as God appeared to Moses is here. And that's why I believe Mark specifically mentions then the whole six days in verse 2, reflecting the six days that Moses was on the mountain with God himself. And that's what it's saying to the disciples. The pathway to the Mount of Transfiguration, the glory that's revealed along a road that passed through the geographical region of Sinai, and that's important. And in symbolic fashion, this glorious mount is forecasting a death, a death that is owed to Sinai, the place of the giving of the law of God. Sacrifice must be offered. Payment must be met. Death must be given. And this transfiguration is just a glimpse of what lies beyond that, not in place of it. Peter hadn't understood that. You remember he had taken Jesus aside 
in the chapter before and began to rebuke him. I mean, that, it's kind of mind-blowing, isn't it? It, it? Somebody rebuking the Lord Jesus because he had spoken of his own death and crucifixion, but they didn't understand. And even now on this mountain, the ever-lovable, verbally processing Peter blurts out because he doesn't know what else to say. And when he didn't know what to say, the one thing about Peter is he said things anyway. Do you know anybody like this? Well, let's... He says, let us build three skines, is the Greek word, tents, tabernacles, shebangs, lintos, temporary shelters. Let's stay here. I mean, this is amazing. This is why I follow Jesus. Days like this mountaintop experience, this is fantastic. And it, Peter says, it's good. And it really was good. What's going on inside of Peter can be understood when you remember that in Zechariah chapter 14, it describes the Messianic kingdom as a massive feast of the tabernacles. That was the fall celebration of the harvest. And what happened during this huge party was music and dancing and feasting and tent camping. Yeah, in celebration of the tabernacle, people left their homes and lived intense during the celebration. So Peter's saying, let me build a tent, quick, let's build them, pitch tents. And because he believes the messianic kingdom has come, he's witnessed this incredible power displayed, the glory of God he saw in the heaven. And he's thinking, well, this is it. Jesus, he's God. He can throw off this oppressive Roman rule and the messianic kingdom can begin right now. Well, there's somebody else in the scene who doesn't make it into the text, but he's there. The evil one. What are you saying, Tom? That Satan here on this holy ground? Yes, and he's dogging Peter once again. There's something good in what Peter says. There, there really is. There's great love in what Peter says. His willingness, his, his readiness to serve. He isn't being self-centered. He is, doesn't say, let's put up six tents, one for Elijah, Moses, you, and James and John and me. No, his vision is completely on Jesus, Elijah, and Moses, and there's something beautiful about his eagerness to, to serve and to rough it and to sleep on the ground. But if you observe, he's, he's really guilty in this moment of two things. First, He's guilty of foolishness. I, to think that the blinding glory of God could somehow be contained beneath or even need some rocks and branches and a tent fly made out of his cloak, that that could possibly contain the glory of God or that, that he would even need some kind of shelter from the elements. It's a benign foolishness. But worse than that, there's something else here. Sin and I want us to look at it honestly. Because what Peter is saying and what Satan is suggesting behind Peter's words is that it would be better for Jesus to stay here 
on the mountaintop and go directly into heaven than it would be to go to Jerusalem and to the cross. So forget about Jerusalem. Forget about the cross. It's the same insinuation that he made a week before and now here again, and I wonder if Jesus' words are echoing around inside of Peter. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, while the transfiguration was a mystery to the disciples then, it would fail to remind them of Jesus' true identity in the days to come, even, as he would make his way relentlessly to Jerusalem and eventually to the cross. And because of their fear and because of their dismay, Peter and the others are going to panic, they're going to betray him, and they're going to run away. You see, it's the age-old temptation to shortcut the Father's plan. The desire to proclaim Christ has come in visceral power that he could now throw off that oppressive Roman rule was so strong that Jesus had to rebuke Peter again, as well as James and John. He charged them, it says. And that word is strict military instructions. He chewed them out. He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And as they're walking down the mountainside, he drives home a final prophetic truth about who he really is by cementing the last two verses of the Old Testament, last two verses of Malachi, with John the Baptist, who we met earlier in this story, that he indeed is the spirit of Elijah come. Not Elijah, literally. The, the Bible doesn't teach about you know, reincarnation, but someone likened unto Elijah. And he's saying, yep, and he double underlines, John the Baptist is the real deal. It's all been fulfilled right here. Keep it under your hat. Stay silent. Why? He's wanting that temptation to grab on to political power as what he'd come to um, grasp. That that was the solution, when in fact the real revolution was not one in the governments of man, but in the heart of each and every one of us. But the transfiguration was not only for the disciples, it was undoubtedly for Jesus himself. And that's just too easy for us to forget. It's easy because we far too often forget about the humanity of Jesus. And, and we tend to think of him really as some kind of superhero. Peter underlines this when he writes, he, about this experience, in 2 Peter 2.17, he received from God the Father, honor and glory. This whole thing is directed toward Jesus. The Father, you see, is ministering to the Son. Jesus didn't look like the Son of God to the disciples, 
And most importantly, he didn't look like the Son of God to himself either. Nor did the providence of God work out in such a way as to confirm to Jesus in every step of his journey his true identity. Instead, much of what Jesus went through would tempt him to question his own identity. This is seen in the fallen world in which he was born. The, the evil one, directly and indirectly, as in our example today, tempting him to doubt his relationship with his father in heaven, to think that his father just really didn't care about him anymore. And this is made crystal clear at the zenith of the passion when he cries out in agony, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Mark doesn't tell us what Moses and Elijah talked about with Jesus. That's because Mark is always in a hurry. It'd be just so fascinating to know, I mean, the details that Moses and Elijah, from their perspective of glorified, timeless existence and God's presence in heaven, I so want to know exactly what they talked about on that mountain. And Luke comes in and fills in some of the detail. He said, and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. They're encouraging him. More so, the father comes to the son at the very threshold of his journey that'll lead him inexorably to the cross. And the father is saying to the son, this is the way you must walk. Remember the covenant we made back in Genesis chapter 15, you'll always be my son, and I'll always love you, even in, especially in those moments when circumstances and pain might cause you to think otherwise. And this is a two-edged moment for Jesus. It's a moment of, of deep reassurance uh, of his relationship to his father. And at the same time, it's a moment of incredible temptation. The door through which Moses and Elijah, and Elijah had come was a door through which Jesus must very soon walk. A door closed since the Garden of Eden and guarded by an angel with a flaming sword as described in Genesis chapter three. The temptation surely would have been to shortcut, to walk through the door that was right in front of him right now. And maybe he even had precedent. I mean, Elijah had gone up in a whirlwind with chariots of fire. Nonetheless, a door, as C.S. Lewis described it, right? In the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, in the back of the wardrobe, through the back of a wardrobe and in to glory. He was that close, that close to his native glory, just the other side of that door without having to go to Jerusalem, without having to go to the cross. I mean, we, we can't begin to fathom this morning the immensity of the temptation that must have been upon him that Jesus could have gone home at that point, not faced the cross, not faced being separated from his father. The temptation to shortcut, 
to play it safe, to tap out. There's a glory to come, but not yet. You must first walk this veil of tears, descend the valley of death, drink the cup of wrath, and fulfill the covenant of Genesis 15, the promise that the Trinity made to save us. Now lastly, there is a sense in which this is directed not only toward the disciples and to Jesus. There's in a very real sense that it's meant for you and me. If Jesus Christ needed this kind of deep reassurance from his Father, then you and I don't need to beat ourselves up whenever we find ourselves needing it too. That the Father would come to us in our trials and in our difficulties, in our pains, in our sorrows, in our crosses and in our losses, that the Father would come and put his arms around us and reassure us that we are an adopted child of his family. There's here not only a word of encouragement, but a word of immense comfort. Jesus said in John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That one day, you and I, you and Christ Jesus, will live together forever on the other side of that door. And we shall see him, John says, the same John that was standing on the mountain of transfiguration. We will see him as he is. Hear him, my friends. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. The father is saying to you today, listen to him. The Greek word right here for listen, it's in the present active imperative form. Literally, it means listen always and keep on listening. Because when you listen to Jesus Christ, when you always listen and keep on listening, he can and he will transfigure your soul. He can transfigure your despair in the face of fear, grief, loss, sorrow, hardship, injustice, rejection, anxiety, loneliness, pain, suffering, and even death. He can transfigure it all into hope. Hope, not hope without tears, not hope without struggle, but unshakable hope, which your soul was purpose-built to receive, function with, and generously share. Listen to me. Whatever you're facing today, God knows. He sees you, 
and there's absolute assurance that he is with you and he loves you and he will never abandon you. Jesus went through that door, took the sword, went to the cross, endured the judgment for all of our sin that you, so that you and I would never have to. He was able to do so because of what this account of the transfiguration meant to him, the temptation he overcame on our behalf, what he wants it to mean to you and me. Let it mean the same to you. Reject the temptation of trying to shortcut life by trying to save yourself. Trust the Father because of what Jesus did and ask him to apply it to your life today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you today for the powerful truth of this passage. Thank you that your son Jesus didn't yield to the temptation and shortcut your plan, but fulfilled the law and the prophets in giving his life for whosoever will believe can have life eternal. Thank you for everything the transfiguration meant to the disciples, what it meant to him, and what can now mean to us. And through it, let us find the hope that we need this week to follow you. In the strong name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen.